What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. Abraham Lincoln is consistently ranked the top U.S. president of all time by public polls and historical scholars. His history-changing accomplishments include abolishing slavery, managing the country through a civil war which resulted in preserving and strengthening the Union, as well as modernizing the country's economy. My guest today is Eric Foner, who is the DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University. He is one of the country's most prominent historians. He is the author of The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, which was the winner, among other awards, of the Bancroft Prize, the Pulitzer Prize for History, and the Lincoln Prize. Abraham Lincoln was born February 12, 1809. He was born in Kentucky to an, basically an illegitimate mother and a farmer father. And if we can speak a little bit about his family of origin and who they were and a little bit of what they were like and therefore what the impact was on a young Abe. So his father was Thomas. Well, let me say to begin with that there's an enormous amount of literature about Lincoln out there. Somebody uh, has estimated that there are 16,000 books that deal with Lincoln in one way or another. If you count it up, that's an average of more than two books a week since the American Civil War. Wow. So there are many different interpretations or accounts of Lincoln's early family and what the impact of that his upbringing was on his later career and character. I think it's very complicated. Despite those 16,000 books, we know a lot less about Lincoln's early life than we might want to. And he didn't talk about it all that much in his campaign autobiography. He just said, well, my life, he quoted a line from a poem, it's the annals of the poor. In other words, not very interesting, his early life. His father was a 
farmer in Kentucky, and then they moved when he was young to Indiana, where he really grew up. They weren't dirt poor, but they certainly weren't affluent in any way, and uh, they were all very hard working. I'd say the most important thing about Lincoln's youth is that he somehow figured out that the way to get ahead was not through hard physical labor, but through his mind. He was a smart guy. He loved to read. He was self-educated completely. He only had like one year of schooling in his whole life. And his stepmother encouraged this. He was, a, as he grew, he was a big, strong guy. And his father wanted, you know, needed his, to work in the field, uh, which he did. But he also spent a lot of time reading and his mother encouraged this. And if his father complained that he wasn't working, his mother said, look, his stepmother, I mean, uh, you know, this, this is what he wants to do. This is what he needs to do. Let him read. Let him learn. You know, he did have, we know, at least some early trauma in the form of an infant brother who died. Now, we could say that's traumatic or we could say not. His sister died. But very, very early on, there was a baby brother who died in babyhood, which isn't traumatic in the sense that that was not uncommon for those times. And yes, he had this sister to whom he was very close, who in his teen years died in childbirth. That was a big loss. But as you pointed out, his mother died of this milk poison, which again, unfortunately, was not unusual. Also, an aunt and uncle died of the milk poison when he was only nine. And one thing that does seem to be somewhat known factually is, right, the father left all the children together in this sort of one room house to fend for themselves for a fairly long for months, basically for months by themselves while he went to find himself a new wife. Right. He couldn't handle the whole thing himself. He needed another wife. Right. They were left on their own, which wasn't very easy, but they somehow managed to survive until the father came back with the stepmother. The original mother, he has in somewhere sort of described her or she is described as kind of a colder woman. Again, she died by the time he was nine. So one of the problems here is that we don't have documentation really about Lincoln's early life. What we're basing this on is people's recollections later on. After Lincoln became famous and great and was assassinated, his law partner Herndon, who wrote the first biography, went around interviewing people. And of course, their recollections of Lincoln were filtered through what they knew he had become. You know, oh, yeah, I know, of course, Lincoln, when he was five years old, he determined to free the slaves, you know. A lot of those recollections are not 100% reliable, let's put it that way. He described himself as kind of a, a sensitive kid, as you said, a, a reader, and others described him as a young person, let's say, as ambitious in certain ways, like driven, but also very sensitive, that he was sort of a sensitive man. He was sensitive. He had a very complicated relationship with his father because Lincoln was quite ambitious and he felt his father wasn't very ambitious. It wasn't exactly that he was lazy. He was a hardworking guy. You couldn't live as a small farmer in Indiana and, be, and not work hard. But he didn't seem to want to get ahead. Lincoln felt that his father lacked ambition, that he was satisfied with a kind of subsistence life, low-income life, whereas Lincoln, for reasons that I don't know exactly how do you explain, he was driven by ambition very early on. Later on, he really had a complicated relationship with his father when his father was dying. Right. He didn't come to his bedside, right? He didn't come to his funeral. 
Yeah, his stepmother, this is like 1850 or something. Lincoln is 40 years old. And his stepmother said, well, sent him a letter. He was living about 70, 80 miles away in Springfield at that time in Illinois. And his stepmother said, you know, I think your father is dying and you should come and say goodbye. And Lincoln said, I don't see what that would accomplish. You know what I mean? We know that, therefore, that there wasn't certainly a warm relationship. And in fact, his father basically docked his pay until the age of 22. Again, not a highly unusual practice, but Lincoln seemed to feel really chafe under this idea of, you know, whatever I do, you take it. Well, that's up to age 21. Yeah. Again, he's a strong guy. He works hard. His father would send him out to work for neighbors to pay off his own debts. And once he got to be 21, Lincoln just took off. I mean, that was it. He left. He didn't want to be stuck there in the backwoods, you know, working in the, all the benefit going to his father. He actually became an urban person. I mean, small towns, but he never went back to work on a farm. Later on, he was offered to be governor of the territory of Oregon. He said, no, that's uh, that's off the beaten path. I'm not going out there. Some early effects, you could say, and then we'll move into his move to his urban life. But you could say in terms of what might have affected him early in his life regarding the concept of slavery. His parents did belong to a separate Baptist church that did believe in no slavery. Right. His, his parents were anti-slavery, no question about it. Anti-slavery, actually also anti-dance, anti-alcohol. There was sort of a whole. But interestingly, even though his father did pursue sort of owning a farm and working the farm, definitely did not believe in slavery. And I'm going to just as a psychoanalyst go out on a limb and say that if you're chafing under your father's, you will go out and work for me and I will take your pay and this will go on indefinitely. One could imagine a young man feeling enslaved of sorts and and feeling further. I'm not going to do this. There are people who recall, but I put that in quotes, you know, that Lincoln once said, I was a slave. But, you know, I don't 100% believe that. As I say, I think people remembered a lot of things about Lincoln that never really happened from old days. But, you know, to me, the most interesting thing about Lincoln as a young man growing up in the frontier is that he really learned to think for himself very early. He was alienated, in a way, from the culture he was growing up in. He didn't drink. Now, everyone was boozed up on the frontier all the time, not Lincoln. He was kind to animals. He didn't like to go hunting. He didn't get involved in fistfights. And occasionally he was in a wrestling match, but he didn't like violence. He didn't hate Indians. In other words, he thought for himself. He thought for himself, but you could also say all those things you described suggest a man early on with a degree of empathy. That was unusual. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Also, he rejected the, what you might call the kind of really hardcore masculinity of the culture there. Maybe that's empathy. Now, I'm not going out, you know, there are historians who claim that Lincoln was really gay, which to my mind is absurd. There's no real evidence of that. But people saw this sensitive and empathic man with already early on a a pretty high-level moral compass. Yes, I I think so. You know, so he was also against slavery, no question about it. Now, he got that from his parents. He got that from some of the reading he did. He was often reading things which had an anti-slavery implication to it. He wasn't an abolitionist. You know, he didn't go out on 
until much later. He didn't go out making public statements against slavery. But that's certainly something that was part of his uh, upbringing. And even that was unusual in his neck of the woods, because most of the people who settled in southern Indiana, like his own family, were from the slave-owning states. They weren't pro-slavery in an extreme way, but they certainly weren't anti-slavery either. But as you mentioned earlier, he even had this feeling of compassion for animals, that there's this, I don't know if it's apocryphal or true story of risking getting into a brawl with a bunch of boys because he stopped them from, quote, burning a turtle. Torturing an animal. Yeah, that, that could be true. It's, it rings true. As I say, I think you have to take these recollections with a big grain of salt. But uh, still, some of them are probably true. And if you hear more than one person recollecting it, it makes sense. He leaves his father. He basically pursues a life of, of education. Self, self-education, really. So he teaches himself the law? Yeah. He basically puts himself through law school, in, in a sense. He didn't have to go to law school back then. Therefore, he didn't have student loans to pay off. You just worked with a lawyer, and then you took, you know, then you got admitted to the bar. But he was a pretty good lawyer, apparently. His real history as an adult takes place in Illinois, not Indiana. He moves to Illinois when he gets to be 21 and goes into politics very early. I mean, he ran for office like at age 21 or two. The first time he ran, he lost, but he was in politics all the way through. Today, a lot of people look down or don't hold politicians in high esteem, but he was a politician. That was his real passion. He made a living as a lawyer, but politics were what he was really interested in. Do we know anything of what motivated him early on to want to be a politician? Here's an example of him thinking for himself. He joined the Whig Party not widely known nowadays, because they believed in improvement, the same kind of self-improvement he was talking about. They believed in what we call today infrastructure, building canals, building railroads, the government setting up a national bank. In other words, the government promoting economic growth that would then benefit everybody. Lincoln believed in that. Now, the fact is, in Illinois, most people were not Whigs. They were Democrats. The party he joined was a big loser. They always lost in most elections. They never elected a governor in Illinois. They never elected a senator. Lincoln joined them because he was this belief in improvement, both personal improvement and economic improvement for the whole society. The Democrats believed in laissez-faire. The government just step out of the way, let everybody do what they feel like. But Lincoln felt, you're not going to grow the economy that way. I think his initial interest in politics was part of this kind of forward-looking vision of general social improvement. And he certainly didn't shy away from aligning himself with the underdogs, as you point out. The Whigs were the underdogs, right? They kept losing. Well, they were the underdog, but they were also the rich. I mean, that's the funny thing. Lincoln grew up pretty modest, but the Whigs were the party of the big business people, as well as young guys, you know, humble guys like Lincoln. But it's complicated. Yeah, they were the minority, but nationally, the richest slave owners were Whigs. The merchants in New York City were Whigs. The bankers were Whigs. The Democrats were the small farmers, the factory workers, you know, the more of the working class party and great followers of Andrew Jackson. It was sort of like today where the personality 
of the political leader was the key thing. You know, so you have Trump today with millions of followers, and you had Andrew Jackson back then with millions of followers, and it didn't even matter what he said. They just loved Andrew Jackson, not Lincoln. He didn't like Andrew Jackson. He's a Whig. The Whigs are opposing Jackson. We should also say that in terms of his early adulthood, at this point, when he's early on, there's no evidence of depression. But by age 26, with actually what seems to have been the tipping point was a rejection, really. He'd been awkward with women. He wasn't a charismatic, let's say, and, and comfortable with women. He was also quite ugly. Okay. Well, that doesn't help. Many women <laughs> felt that. He would always be self-deprecating. You know, he told stories about how ugly he was, which, you know, I don't know what psychologically that means. He would say, you know, well, a woman said to me, uh, you know, you're the ugliest man I've ever seen. So Lincoln said, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but what can I do about that? And she said, well, you could stay indoors. This is Lincoln telling a story about himself. So he had a masochistic streak of sorts, one might say, and that would fit with his reaction to some degree to the rejection of Anne Rutledge, who does appear to be his first love. Right. That's what they say. Uh, is it true? Possibly. <laughs> and it does seem, though, that there is evidence of what today we would call a, a major depression, a real clinical depression. Absolutely. He suffered depression a couple of times, one when Ann Rutledge died, really. And then later when his engagement to marry Todd broke up and they were going to get married, then they decided not to for one reason or then he, his friends really thought he was going to commit suicide, that he was suicidal. They took anything out of his rooms that might be dangerous. Now, again, this is way beyond my pay grade. Is this psychological? Is it chemical? I don't know. What causes depression anyway? I don't even know if doctors know that. There's definitely a clear mix, right, of nature-nurture, of biology and genetics. And it's hard to document a family history when you don't have documents. So we don't know a lot about his extended family history in terms of recurrent major depression, but definitely a documentation of recurrent periods of being suicidal and having suicidal ideation means major depression. And he could have had a biological predisposition and then a stressor like a rejection by a woman, which, by the way, when you have your mother die at the age of nine, that is going to sensitize you to the abandonment or loss of an important woman in your life. So not surprising that somebody who is predisposed perhaps to depression would have severe depressions in the stressor of losing a woman. And in terms of the biology and Lincoln, it does seem, because even between these episodes of severe depression, he is described and pictorially appears to be a melancholy man. And that's what they called it in those days, melancholy, which was much more romanticized version. In other words, in those days, it wasn't seen like today. It wasn't seen as mental illness that perhaps we stigmatize and definitely look down on you functionally as a person, which is unfortunate because it's unfair and untrue. But in those days, there was a romantic version of being somewhat depressed. That is right. However, let me just say that Lincoln eventually did marry Mary Todd, and they had a quite good marriage, actually even though you wouldn't know that from a lot of books about Lincoln. You know, when you put someone up on a pedestal, there's got to be the opposite somewhere around. Lincoln is a godlike figure 
Who's the devil? Well, it's Mary Todd. She was horrible. She was a shrew. She spent too much money. She spoiled the children. I think they actually had a very good marriage. They had problems, but not nearly as much as you might guess in a lot of the readings. She had a tough life, or later on. I mean, she had children die young. Her husband was assassinated sitting next to her. That can... She ultimately suffered her own psychiatric issues. She did, but a lot of that is later on. In other words, yes. while she's married to Lincoln. I mean, eventually, her, her son had her committed to an institution for a while. But she had, as you said, she had all these traumas later. She gets a bad rap from a lot of the people who really love Lincoln. They decide they have to have someone as the uh, foil. So anyway, in other words, I don't want to give the impression that he was always melancholy and their marriage was kind of depressing because of that. No, it wasn't. They actually had a pretty good time. Now, it is also true in terms of familiar, you know, being comfortable with women. Lincoln really, as a lawyer in the 1840s, let's say, and into the 50s, he was frequently not home. He was what they call on the circuit. It was a weird thing. These groups of lawyers and judges would travel together through Illinois, stopping in each town to hear local cases. They all knew each other. A case would be, okay, you represent this side and you represent that side, and Judge Smith over here will come in and hear the case. Lincoln really loved that. He loved traveling around the state with all these guys, and he didn't mind being away from home all that much. And maybe that's the secret of a good marriage. Many people say that, that you have some space. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, but he did want to marry Mary Todd very much so. And she was ambitious for herself, ambitious for him. You had to say for him, because in those days, that was the only vehicle women had for their own ambition. If it had been today, she'd have been running for president, not him. But she was very politically savvy. You know, her father was a significant figure in Kentucky politics. The family knew Henry Clay, who was one of the great politicians of that era, uh, she was well-educated, unlike Lincoln. I mean, so here's a little tidbit. Historians always refer to her as Mary Todd Lincoln. That is not, she never used that. She was always Mary Lincoln. You put in the Todd, you're sort of creating a little separation between her and Lincoln. She didn't want, no, she was devoted to Lincoln and ambitious for Lincoln and for herself, absolutely. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. 
Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. So even though he, you know, went through these periods of depression, obviously he had friends, colleagues, and ultimately a wife who who helped protect him from himself in those darkest moments. And as you said, he remained highly functional. He continued to pursue these political offices. It was a struggle at first, and it's interesting because he didn't really do that well politically almost up until the time he was elected president. I know. He lost a lot of uh, races. I mean, he was in the Illinois legislature for a few terms. He actually became a Philly important leader of the Whig party in Illinois, even though that (laughs) they always lost. He served one term in Congress and that's it. He left Congress in the beginning of 1849. He didn't hold another office until he's elected president. So that's kind of unusual in American politics. He ran for the Senate in 1854 and lost. He ran for the Senate in 1858 and lost, but he kept going forward. That's what he had ambition. He had a lot of friends. He was a very savvy politician. He obviously must have been a very, I don't know what to say, likable, congenial guy. He was always surrounded by people who really were devoted to him. I would argue that because this is something we do know about depression, that having depression makes you a more empathic person and that being able to stand in other people's shoes helps them connect with you, brings people to you. And of course, that was one of the gifts that Lincoln had in spades, his ability to bring others and colleagues and create groups that could work together, that he helped manage that and create that the desire to do that was definitely a talent of his that we see early on and an important talent that carried him through what turned out to be one of the most difficult time periods in terms of a presidency. Right. But here's the problem that Lincoln faced, particularly in the Whig Party. The Whig Party was a national party. that It was in the North and the South and East, West. Lincoln in Congress associated with members of the party from all over the country. And yes, he was devoted to bringing people together. But if you were going to bring, if you're going to keep the unity of the party, you could not talk about slavery. That was the one dangerous line of division. There was no agreement on slavery within the Whig Party any more than there was within the country. And so you had to face this problem. You had to keep it off the agenda, the future of slavery, no matter what your personal beliefs, if you wanted to maintain the unity and strength of the party. So that's a tremendous tension. In the 1840s, when he's a politician in the Whig Party, he doesn't say very much about slavery at all. He gives his few speeches in Congress. He doesn't say anything much about slavery. Why? Because that would create a division within the political party. In the 1850s, when the political system kind of cracks up, then there's an opening. The opening is the Republican Party, which is only a northern party. It doesn't exist in the South. 
It's devoted to stopping the expansion of slavery. And there, Lincoln can come in and take a major role because the party's raison d'etre is northern. It doesn't have to worry about southern support anymore. So really, as opposed to Lincoln's critics who say, well, the Civil War and his actions were really originally never about emancipation, it's not clear, like you said, that it would be sort of, I guess, party suicide to have been very vocal about that early on. But it's certainly by the time he is nominated for president and basically beats out Seward, Chase, Cameron, Dayton, Wade, that is on his mind. Well, you know, Lincoln, this is awfully complicated. And as you say, there are many different Lincolns out there in the literature. There's no question that Lincoln personally hated slavery. Absolutely. But that is not a party. That's not a political program to say, I hate slavery. What are you going to do about it? And that's a little tricky because the Constitution protects slavery. The South has enough power in Congress to prevent anything from being done there. The crux of the political debate comes to be whether slavery should expand into the Western territories. That Not the existence of slavery at the moment, but its westward expansion. And there, Lincoln becomes a very vocal and eloquent opponent of the expansion of slavery, starting really in 1854, when he's out uh, giving speeches uh, for complicated reasons, you know, but the Congress had opened up the westward expansion of slavery through the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Lincoln opposes that. The Whig Party breaks up along north to south lines. Then, you know, the 1850s, one thing after another happens, which exacerbates the sectional crisis. Civil war in Kansas, the Dred Scott decision, which says that black people can never be citizens of the United States, John Brown invading the South to set off a slave revolution. All these things exacerbate the slavery issue. So Lincoln wants to stop the expansion of slavery, but he's not an abolitionist. He's not calling for immediate ending of slavery. And yet he's not willing to retreat either. You know, when people say Lincoln only cared about the Union, not slavery, I say, well, then why didn't he just give the South what it wanted? You could easily save the Union by giving in to Southern demands. If you didn't care about slavery, why not? When the South begins to secede, Lincoln, when he's president-elect, he gets a letter from Alexander Stevens, who we had a form of Georgian, who formerly he knew in Congress very well. And Stevens is actually not forced to say, he says to Lincoln, look, you've got to issue a statement reassuring the South here. And Lincoln says, you know, what could I say in this statement? The problem is this. You think slavery is right, and we think slavery is wrong. That's the problem here. Well, if that's the problem, how are you going to solve it? How can you compromise? Well, it's half right and half wrong. So you have to distinguish between personal hatred of slavery and any policies which are politically viable in a constitutional system that protects slavery. Now, Lincoln is a believer in law and order, you know, so an abolitionist will violate the law. They will, let's say, prevent fugitive slaves from being recaptured. That's against the law. The fugitive slave law says you've got to get these guys back. Lincoln never, he says we have to abide by the fugitive slave law, even though we hate it. It's a horrible law, one of the worst laws ever passed in American history. We have to abide by it. Why? It's in the Constitution that the owners have to get their fugitive slave. If we violate the Constitution, the country is going to fall apart. 
So he's torn between the idea of the union. Now, you can take this back psychologically if you want to his childhood, that somehow stability is important to him, that the breakup of the country would be, in a way, writ large, the things that happened to him when he was young. You could do that. But I think another feature you could think about is that people with recurrent major depression, in addition to having higher levels of empathy from the suffering that they've had, et cetera, also have higher levels of realism. People tend to think that people with depression actually see everything in this highly negative light all the time and the rest of us see things realistically. That is actually not the case often. Often the case is we see things with a bit of rosy colored glasses in an optimistic way and people with depression see things in a very realistic way. And Lincoln was very realistic. He, you know, as you said, these were problems that didn't have at all easy solutions, but he also didn't look away. He didn't gloss over. Lincoln was realistic, but also not realistic in some ways. For example, in the 1850s, what was his plan? He had a plan to get rid of slavery, but it required the cooperation of the slave owners. But, well, there was no way of abolishing slavery without their approval until you had war. But his plan was one gradual emancipation. That is, it would take place over a long period. Sometimes he said 50, 60 years even. Secondly, the slave owners would be compensated. They'd be losing property. Today, we have people talk about reparations for the slaves. No, Lincoln's talking about reparations for the owners because they're losing what is for slaves, which are property. But the third part of it is what he calls colonization. The freed slaves have to be sent out of the country because you can never have a biracial republic. You can never have a society of equality with black and white living together. They've got to get out. Now, that's utterly unrealistic. It's completely crazy. The notion that four million people are just going to be shipped somewhere else. But Lincoln believed in this. Henry Clay, his political idol, believed in it. All the way up into the Civil War, Lincoln is talking about it. So, you know, like any politician and others, Lincoln has got some plans which are very realistic and some which aren't. On the empathy point, yes, I agree with you. One of the interesting things about Lincoln's speeches on slavery is he doesn't actually talk about the terrible reality of slavery, the whippings, the rapes, the violence until the very end of the Civil War when he does talk dramatically about it. Abolitionists are always talking about the brutality of slavery to the individual slave, not Lincoln. He talks about slavery as a matter of principle, as a, you know, it's unjust. It's against the principles of the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. Privately, he does. He has a famous letter to his friend Joshua Speed in which he talks about a time they had seen a group of slaves being transported to be sold at a slave market in St. Louis. And he says, you know, that sight was a torture to me just to see this, but I bite my lip and keep silent. Why? Why does he, why does he keep silent? He said, you have to realize how much the people of the North crucify our feelings to maintain the Union crucify your feeling. In other words, he's very upset to see what is the buying and selling of human beings, and yet he doesn't say anything about that. 
So how that fits into this question of empathy, I don't know, but he feels the empathy. But politically, he can't give voice to that. The fight between his empathy and his moral compass and his ambition was clearly along the way a difficult fight. And he clearly also believed that without achieving a certain degree of power, he would never be in a position to make changes. Right. But remember, once the political system cracks up and (laughs) refigures itself, then for the first time, his ambition and his beliefs now coincide. They line up. In that setting, he's elected president, 1861. Right, 1860 election, right, and then 1861. He's inaugurated, right, in 61. And in 62, emancipation is announced, right, for the first time, and proclaimed in 63. He gives his Gettysburg address. How does this continue to play out? What are the most important, I guess, features psychologically that he brings to this, to the Civil War, to what is occurring? First of all, here's the irony of Lincoln in a way. Lincoln is not a violent man. Lincoln is a peace-loving man. He does not like violence. He does not like fighting. And yet he presides over the most bloody violence in American history. 750,000 people die in the Civil War. If you multiply that out proportionate to the population, that would be over 7 million deaths today in this country. This is the role he's given, so to speak. And he will not retreat and recognize and accept the breakup of the country. So yeah, at the beginning of the war, Lincoln says very explicitly, we are fighting for the Union. We are fighting to maintain the Union. We are not fighting to abolish slavery. That is not a purpose of the war. Purpose of the war is to maintain the unity of the nation. But very quickly, that position is becomes more and more difficult to hold. First of all, right at the beginning of the war, slaves start running away to Union lines. They, the slaves understand this war is about slavery. It, whatever Lincoln says, it doesn't make any difference. They understand the balance of power is now shifted at the When the Union Army begins to enter, let's say, Virginia, the power of this local slave owner is broken. Even though the army says, well, we're not here to interfere with slavery, slaves run away and they say, we want our freedom. Here we are. They present themselves at these Union Army camps. Well, what are you going to do? There is no policy. Some generals send them back. They say, forget it. We don't want you. Go back to your owner. Some of them say, well, These guys are working for the Confederacy. Their labor is helping the Confederacy. Why should I send them back to work in a way that is bad for our army? No, keep me. Let them work for us. Put them to work. Let them build fortifications or dig ditches or something. So the government has to start making policy about slavery right at the beginning. And very quickly, it's clear they're not going to send these guys back. So the Union Army becomes a refuge. That's not an official policy, really. It's just a fact on the ground. But do we have evidence that Lincoln really quietly was using the the need? Well, I mean, clearly he believed that there needed to be a union and we and it, it was a moral crisis of epic proportion to consider any sort of division. While that was the main message and clearly the message that he believed, was this also the nose under the tent for emancipation? Was there evidence that that was really something he was after, even though he couldn't say this is the purpose? Here you're getting into a lot of speculation, but Lincoln is pulled in many directions. The notion that in a war, the protections of slavery fall away was widely known. I mean, you know, in the American Revolution, the British 
had offered freedom to American slaves. Any slave who ran away to the British became free. Why? Were the British anti-slavery? No. You weaken the other side by offering freedom to their slaves. This happened all the time. It happened in the West Indies. Everybody knew this. In fact, the U.S. government had done it when they were fighting the Seminole Indians in Florida. The slaves from Georgia had run away, and they were with the Seminole. The Union Army general said to the Seminole, "Look, you, well, you can keep these slaves. We're not, you know, we're not going to send them back. You can free them. I don't care, but if you have to surrender, you know." So the idea that war changes the laws about slavery was very well known. But on the other hand, there were four slave states that had not seceded, the so-called border states, including Kentucky, his home state, Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, Delaware. They were slave states, but they were still in the Union. Lincoln was constrained. He knew that if you started taking direct action against slavery, you might drive these guys to secede, particularly Kentucky. If Kentucky seceded, it would make it almost impossible to defeat the Confederacy. So he's constrained by that. That's part of the politics of war. On the other hand, there's growing pressure in the North of people saying, why are we protecting slavery here now? This is a war to, to defend slavery. Let's go after the slavery. You know, it's slaves that are helping to keep these armies in the field. They're growing the crops. They're doing the work. So as time goes on, and particularly since they're not winning the war, at the, you know, in the first year, it's kind of a stalemate. And they said, well, we, we can't fight this war with one hand tied behind our back. And Lincoln comes to accept this. By the early 1862, Congress is already moving forward. They abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. They repeal the Fugitive Slave Act. Lincoln is pushing for gradual emancipation. Nobody wants to accept it. So, you know, the issue comes pretty fast. But within a year of the beginning of the war, slavery is right on the agenda. And Lincoln realizes he has to make some policy. You know, it's July 1862. He tells his cabinet, we're going to have to liberate the slaves, folks. You know, we just are not winning the way we want to. If the Confederacy had surrendered right off, slavery would have survived. But as long as the war goes on, the pressure to deal with slavery becomes stronger and stronger. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. 
Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Now, it's interesting that, you know, though he's self-taught, he's a lawyer by trade, he is intimately involved with the decision-making and the plan of attack in terms of the civil war, in terms of the choice of generals and what will happen. That He is really at the center of that intellectually. Yeah, it's interesting because he had no military experience whatsoever. He'd been in the militia, but they didn't. the militia generally got drunk once a month and uh, had a nice party. But he understood something that a lot of the generals took a long time to understand, which is, A, that the target of the war was the armies of the South. There were generals, well, we're going to occupy territory, we'll occupy, and then the South will surrender. No, you've got to defeat their armies in the field. And second of all, that the Union had the advantage of greater manpower. That wasn't as big an advantage as you might think, because the task of the Union was much bigger. The North had to occupy or, you know, conquer the South. The South didn't have to conquer the North. They didn't have to invade the North. So you needed a lot more men if you're going to invade and and conquer the South. What Lincoln realized is if to use your manpower advantage, you've got to be attacking in many places at once. Most of the generals said, oh, we're going to build up, build up, and we'll have one big battle. Well, that allows the South to move its men to defend. You can't do that. Then on the ground, you don't have an advantage. But if you attack in 10, you know, five play all along the line, as General Grant said, then somewhere there's going to be a weak spot in the Confederacy because they don't have the manpower. But it took a long time to get generals to appreciate that. Of course, it meant higher casualties. The force that was on the attack was going to suffer much bigger casualties if they're attacking an entrenched army behind fortifications and all this kind of thing. So Lincoln is willing to accept really high casualties in order to win the war. He had to find generals who understood the situation as well as he did. Eventually he does. Grant, Sherman, Sheridan. The early generals were not really cut out for this kind of war. They were still fighting the Napoleonic Wars, where the aim is to amass a giant army and then just go and overwhelm the opponent. But they couldn't really do that in this war. So uh, they needed other ways of fighting, which eventually you get toward the end of the war. He was very tactical, intellectually in an unusual way, given his, as you point out, his, his total lack of experience. And he did go to the battlefields. He did write to the parents of lost sons. And he did do these things, which, you know, are caused him no doubt, great suffering. He agonized over the war. It made him more religious. Here's another thing, going back to his upbringing. Lincoln never joined a church. The frontier was full of these revival preachers. Lincoln was pretty much a skeptic in religion. He never, I think he's the only president who never belonged to a church in his entire life. He would worship with his wife sometime here and there, but the war made him think more about maybe it's a way out. You know, this is God's plan. This is God's punishment for the sin of slavery or something like that. 
many people were saying that at the time. The difference is northern preachers would say, this is God's punishment to the South for the sin of slavery. Lincoln said, this is the punishment to the nation, because we are all complicitous here. The North is equally guilty of profiting from slavery. He called it American slavery, not Southern slavery. To my mind, one of the most admirable qualities of Lincoln is, first of all, just modesty. You know, I hate to say it, but He's a guy with ambition, but he doesn't mind criticism. Well, let's put it this way. As you're saying, if you can't accept constructive criticism, right, you can't grow and learn, continue to grow and learn. And that was something that Lincoln very much did do. Well, that's part of self-education. He was always learning. I used to tell my students before I retired, here's what you should learn from Lincoln. You have a much greater education than he did, but he was always learning his entire life. Don't stop learning when you graduate from college, you know. And that enabled him to change during the war. In a, in a situation like this, just sticking to the old ways is definitely a recipe for defeat. Lincoln changed his attitudes. He changed his attitude about how to get rid of slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation is completely different from his older point of view. It's immediate, not gradual. There's nothing in it about payment to the slave owners. They're not going to get the compensation. And he drops this idea of colonization. The blacks are going to remain in the country now. And moreover, he says they can join the army. They've never allowed blacks in the army. Now, combat troops, we're going to have thousands of black people in the army. Lincoln, this is all change in Lincoln's attitude. Because he was mentally flexible enough to address what had become not only a moral crisis and a military crisis, but for him, a constitutional crisis. Because as you said, right, it was all about the Constitution, but it was a crisis constitutionally for him that the Constitution said slavery is fine. And he took that on as well. The Southerners accused him of being a tyrant who ran roughshod over the Constitution. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus, you know, cracked down on criticism of the administration, Freeing the slaves? What is the constitutional basis for that? Lincoln said, well, it's my role as commander-in-chief. The president is commander-in-chief. This is a military measure. It's to help win the war. You know, you read the Emancipation Proclamation. It's not like the Declaration of Independence. It doesn't talk about all men being created equal. It's a military order. It's boring, really, but it's military necessity is the constitutional justification. And Lincoln puts it up. He, at one point, he says, I have not violated the Constitution. I have gone beyond the Constitution. But, the, you know, fair enough. The people who wrote the Constitution did not anticipate a situation where 11 states waged war against the rest of the country. There was nothing in the Constitution about how to deal with that. So you've got to try to figure it out. But they abolished slavery eventually with a constitutional amendment the 13th Amendment. The Emancipation Proclamation frees a lot of slaves, but not all of them by any means. The 13th Amendment eradicates slavery in the whole country. So the Constitution has changed. And at the end of the day, though, this obviously, this as you point out, the Civil War, the largest loss of life ever and an absolute demolishing, you know, so much of the nation. But he is 
at the end, loved as a president, and he's reelected. He's reelected. He, at a certain point, he thought he was not going to be reelected because in 1864, there was a lot of war weariness in the North. But then the tide of battle turned in uh, September 1864. Sherman captured Atlanta. It seemed that suddenly the door had opened to victory pretty soon. But, you know, they didn't suspend the election. They didn't cancel the election. They had an election in the middle of a terrible war. And that was because Lincoln believed in democracy. And he also believed, I hate to get into current events, if he lost, he was going to accept the fact that he lost. And he talked to his cabinet, well, if I lose, what do we do? How do we make sure that the people who have been freed are not put back into slavery? He never said, I'm going to contest the election and deny that I lost. You know, he believed in the democratic system. And it's important for people to understand that he continued to have episodes of terrible depression, even during his presidency. When his son died, he was terribly depressed, as was his wife. But, you know, he couldn't stop being president. Well, you could say that. But I think it's important for people to understand that one can continue to be exceedingly high functioning, even in the face of terrible recurrent depression. And he did. He was. It's not that he didn't express himself. It's not that people weren't aware that he was terribly depressed. It wasn't that he didn't suffer terrible tragedy and his wife didn't. But he continued to function and soldier on and resolve, let's say. And his wife was also terribly depressed when the son died, which didn't make it any easier for Lincoln, obviously. And I just think, you know, we in this country, we still think of, you know, well, you're depressed. You can't be something. You can't be somebody. You can't achieve or you can't recover. You can't be high functioning. And, you know, I think this is really a tremendous example of how untrue that is. And he was reelected. It's hard to say what he might have gone on to do. Unfortunately, that's not history. That's uh, what we call counterfactual history. We, we have enough trouble figuring out what did happen that, you know, that we can't quite say what would have happened. His death is certainly an example of the fact that things were quite unresolved and that the South was tremendously angry and things were basically certainly far from resolution. The basic question facing the country was, what is going to be the status of these four million former slaves? White Southerners said, well, okay, they're not slaves anymore, but they're certainly not going to be citizens or have the right to vote or have any civil rights or not. They just go to work on the plantations again. That will pay them a little. Many Northerners said that's not sufficient as a way of ending slavery. Lincoln, we don't know. Lincoln, had his views on race had evolved considerably during the war. Before the war, he shared a lot of the prejudices of that society. He outgrew a lot of them during the war. He was particularly impressed by the service of 200,000 black soldiers and felt they were essential to victory. They had earned citizenship and rights by serving and dying for the Union. That's one of the reasons he dropped the idea of colonization. You don't put people in the army to fight for the nation and then kick them out of the country when the war is over. But where he would have gone with that is impossible to say. So he didn't leave us any blueprint or or thoughts on in in 1965? Lincoln didn't have blueprints. One of the things about Lincoln is he was an experimenter. He let different things happen. Yeah, there was a blueprint in Louisiana, but there was a different blueprint in Georgia and in Tennessee. For example, people talk a lot about 40 acres and a mule. People have heard that term. You know, the former slaves wanted land as a kind of compensation for the labor they'd done. The way to survive in that society is to own some land. 
General Sherman actually divided up land among former slaves in Georgia. That's where it comes up, 40 acres and a mule to black families. People say, well, what was Lincoln's position on Sherman's order? He gave, Sherman gave this order. What did, Lincoln's position was nothing. He didn't say anything. He didn't oppose it. He didn't approve it. He just let it happen. He wasn't responsible, but he wanted to see what happened. So I don't know what he would have concluded, but that was Lincoln. So there's no blueprint. Lincoln doesn't leave a blueprint. He's an experimenter, and where he would have gone, we don't know. He remains at the top of the list, or certainly in the top three of most important presidents of all time. And it is this unusual combination of intellect, of, I think, empathy. I think, as you said, his mental flexibility, the ability to experiment and to receive constructive criticism as he moved through one of the most difficult periods of history. Absolutely. You have to admire him. I taught about Lincoln my whole career. I've written a book about Lincoln. The more I studied him, the more I came to admire him. He was not a perfect, no human being ever is, but he had many, many admirable qualities, and uh, I think we can learn a lot from Lincoln. Thank you to my guest, Eric Foner, one of America's greatest historians. And if you'd like to know more about Lincoln from Professor Foner, you can see his book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. And during the 2014-15 academic year, his Columbia University course on the Civil War and Reconstruction was made available online free of charge via Columbia X and edX, which can be found on YouTube. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl, go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. 
Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters.